Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Paige Bailey. Paige is a developer advocate for TensorFlow with Google, and we're here at the TensorFlow Developer Summit. Paige, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Excellent. I'm delighted to be here. I am excited to have you on the show and looking forward to diving into all that's new and interesting with TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, a little about your background. How did you get started working in all this stuff? Yeah, so I got started working in machine learning and data science before data science was was really a term, I guess. The, <laughs> um, the uh, My background in undergrad was uh, very geophysics, um, applied mathish. I did uh, I did research in planetary science, uh, doing a, a sort of data analysis on large amounts of data from NASA equipment. Um, so I got to work at places like the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics and Southwest Research Institute, doing lunar ultraviolet research. Um, and that today, uh, doing statistical analysis on multivariate data would be called data science. Um, but back then it was just called research. <laughs> so, uh, so that was when the, the bug first started. And then I started doing machine learning for work um, when I worked at Chevron uh, for predictive modeling in the oil and gas industry. Um, so I guess in terms of data science-y things, I've been doing it for about 10 years. For machine learning, about five to six did you jump from Chevron to Google? No. Um, so so that was uh, an interesting sort of career progression, I guess. Um, I had done planetary science research as an undergrad for my first two internships, and then my third was with Chevron. Okay. Um, and they had me on a really cool project. I got to create a database and, and do some, um, some scripting, some geospatial analysis using Python. Um, and after it, they said, hey, do you want to come work for us? And um, that sounded like a cool job opportunity, especially since they were offering to pay for grad school. And I went to go work uh, there for about five years. Um, and after Chevron, for um, it was time to, to kind of leave and to, to explore new opportunities. And that was Microsoft. So I worked for Microsoft doing machine learning developer advocacy and then as a senior software engineer in the office of the Azure CTO. For those that aren't familiar, what exactly is a developer advocate and how does that translate into how you spend your day to day? Absolutely. So that is a great question. And developer advocacy means different things to different companies. Um, here at Google, uh, developer advocacy uh, developer advocacy is very focused on improving the experience for our end users and for basically anybody who would go about using our tool. And that can include everything from improving documentation to user experience research, to building tutorials and quick starts, to creating curriculum materials like the Udacity and Deep Learning AI uh, courses that we just released, to also engaging with the community um, via social media, but also through things like special interest groups and making sure that if there is a problem with the tool, it's surfaced, fed back to the engineering team, and we can build a plan to resolve whatever that issue happens to be. Um, so if there, if there, if anything is frustrating, so if maybe a higher level API isn't intuitive, um, it might require uh, making a, a pull request and resolving that, or um, say we're we're missing a symbol in our documentation, uh, then um, making uh, making a pull request and fixing that in the docs. 
so it's really a variety of things. But it, um, as I mentioned, it's all very focused on communication, um, improving the developer experience, education, and also um, very much engineering tasks. So, okay. and, and if you're a person who enjoys all of the above, then maybe developer advocacy is right for you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so there was a bunch of interesting TensorFlow news yesterday. Yes, um, there was and... so much. <laughs> it felt like a fire hose almost. And that's that's coming from someone who knew it was all about to happen. <laughs> so many new products. Yep. Yeah, so um, let's. I, I, you know, I'm really interested in kind of digging into them. One of the things I've mentioned this to a couple of times, maybe yesterday. One of the things that's been a little bit difficult for me to parse as an outsider is like, what exactly is new in all of these things that are kind of new? Like, eager mode was highlighted very extensively yesterday, but that was announced last year. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other things that. I'm like, I know I've seen this before. There was a paper that was a couple of years ago, you know, so ha for me, you know, um, probably the best thing to do is to have you kind of walk through from your perspective, you know, what were the highlights uh, and, and what was new? And then we can kind of dig in from there. Right. So it, it is difficult to, to kind of place what um, what's actually new and then what uh, what's just been. Um, what's just been kind of bundled and packaged, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest announcement yesterday by far um, was the alpha release of TensorFlow 2.0. Mm -hmm. And TensorFlow 2.0 is a new version of TensorFlow focused on developer productivity, ease of use, um, Keras as the recommended higher level API um, and eager execution by default, which enables you to do things like uh, better debugging, um, but also the, the Pythonic experience that, um, that you, uh, especially folks coming from scikit-learn and uh, the data science community would expect. Uh, so TensorFlow 2.0 is, um, uh, I mentioned it's eager execution by default, and you're correct in that eager execution was announced last year. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to enable it, you had to do something called like tf.enable eager execution at the top of your script. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you had to, to kind of specify that at the beginning, um, and you had the option of sticking in graph mode if you didn't enable eager execution. TF2.0 is eager by default, okay. which means that you don't have to have that, that line, um, but, it, but it, you're, you're thrown directly into, um, into this experience where uh, you don't have to create a static graph, you don't have to have sessions, you don't have to you know, create the thing before you can interact with it, before you can actually start using it. Um, it it's feels much more Pythonic. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's, that's kind of a new thing in the eager execution by default. Another very, very new thing is that TensorFlow 2.0 was created entirely in collaboration with the community through the RFC process. So every change that was made to the API had to be proposed by an engineer or proposed by someone, um, uh, endorsed by the entire community, discussed, um, and before it was incorporated. Uh, so if you want, if you have any curiosity about these RFCs, uh, you can go and take a look at it on github.com slash tensorflow slash community. We have a list of all of them. Um, and if you care about details, they're all important. Uh, we also have a community of special interest groups, everything from TensorBoard, which is a visualization tool, to Build, which is um, sort of building TensorFlow um, for various Linux distributions, and then also with, with NVIDIA graphics cards drivers and the like. 
Um, we have a special interest group for testing. Um, so if you're trying out TensorFlow 2.0 and you're running into snags, um, or if you need migration support, there's that option for you as well. Um, and then others around networking and data ingestion and, and lots and lots of different ways to get involved. And really, um, as I mentioned, the focus on TF 2.0 is community, sort of building something that, that people would love to use as opposed to the first TensorFlow release, which kind of felt like, hey, here's some code. Like, <laughs> go forth and prosper. <laughs> and, and not exactly the most straightforward sort of code. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's the, the general idea. A lot of the kind of top line takeaways around kind of APIs and developer experience. The eager by default, you can kind of think of that as, okay, so there's one line of code less that I have to write. But is it deeper than that in terms of Absolutely. the underlying architecture and, and the way that the that TensorFlow supports that? That's a great question, and and absolutely. So Carmel, um, during the keynote yesterday, she had this great slide where, um, so if you're a Keras developer, if you have experience using tf.keras, uh, you you can create a neural network with about 10 lines of code. And, and it, it's very straightforward, it's intuitive, it's easy to understand. Um, and again, feels very Pythonic. Mm -hmm. she, showed, uh, she showed a slide saying, here's what your model would look like if you're using TensorFlow like 1.13 or, or TensorFlow 1.12 or, or whatever version. Um, and it's 10 lines of Keras. And she said, and here's what it would look like in TensorFlow 2.0. And it's mm -hmm. the same code, mm -hmm. um, the same code expressed both ways. But the reality is that um, TF 2.0 is, is doing a lot of things under the hood to improve model performance um, and to take that same Keras code and make it scalable um, in a way that uh, in a way that it wasn't experienced before. Um, so even though the code looks exactly the same, um, there are a lot of optimizations under the hood that makes it um, that makes it a bit more performant, especially with distributed architecture. So with distribution strategies. One of the things that was presented yesterday was. There's a fair amount of detail that was gone into around tf.function. Is that totally new? Yeah, tf.function is new. tf.function is basically a way for you to take any, um, any sort of Python function, um, wrap it, uh, and define it as a core TensorFlow operation. So you could have anything from um, adding two numbers Right? So you could have a function that would take, um, you would define something that would add A and B. Um, and if you preface it with an, an at TF function, it would define it as a core TensorFlow operation that, that you could then use in your graph. Um, that, uh, that is pretty new. Um, people have had a, a lot of positive feedback about autograph and TF function both um, when using TensorFlow 2.0. Um, and it makes it a lot easier to take things that traditionally would have been very difficult to do with static computation, um, static graphs, and and uh, sort of use them um, use them in a friendly, dynamic way. Okay. And what is Autograph? Autograph helps you write complicated graph code using normal Python. So um, it automatically transforms your code into the equivalent TensorFlow graph code, and it supports a lot of the Python language. Um, so uh, that is, that's a kind of one-liner explanation of Autograph. 2.0 introduces some significant changes to the API, um, but that's not the only kind of developer 
facing developer experience kind of announcement, one of the ones that's gotten a lot of conversation going is around uh, the Swift for TensorFlow. Yes. I'm curious what your what your thoughts do you do do you know Swift? I, have so, you played with that at all? So I have fiddled with it, but um, only since I got to Google. I hadn't really um, I hadn't really experimented with Swift before. Kind of, well, I get to sit next to Chris Latner, which is uh, Chris Latner <laughs> and Brennan and the entire Swift team. So that that's kind of rad. Um, and the the idea behind Swift for TensorFlow is that uh, if you're a Python developer. Um, Python Python is great in terms of user experience um, as a as a user interface as a programming language. Um, it's a it's a great way to build out products, but it also has a lot of limitations and drawbacks. So, for example, uh, gradient tape is something um, that that causes a great deal of frustration whenever you're whenever you're using TensorFlow. Gradient um, tape. Gradient tape. Uh, what is that? It's how you deal with um, it's how you deal with variables as you're as you're creating your graph. Um, and so, so as a Python developer, it's it's often very frustrating to try to manage all of these um, all of these different aspects. Um, but with um, with a lower level tool uh, um, uh, like Swift, um, uh, a language that's a little bit closer to C plus um, plus, you you get uh, you get afforded a, a great many more um, a, a, a lot more control over over what you're creating. And, and that's kind of the idea. And, and I think that's what captured the imagination of Jeremy Howard. Um, so I'm sure you saw that, that announcement uh -huh. as well. Um, he's, he's using Swift for TensorFlow for his latest iteration of the FastAI curriculum, um, which we're all very excited about. And um, I'm, I'm very curious to see, um, I'm very curious to see how that progresses. Um, another really cool thing about Swift uh, is or Swift for TensorFlow rather is that you can use Python um, within Swift uh, just with import Python um, and and uh, there's a great demonstration from Brennan and from Chris yesterday where you could um, you know create um, create something like a, a plot of of performance or accuracy over time with matplotlib uh, just as simply as you would with with Python except all you have to do is preface it with let. Uh, for your variables, so it's it's. I think um, I think Swift for TensorFlow is a really interesting space. They're still very new, um, mm -hmm. so they're still developing their story and they're still developing the product. Um, but uh, I'm I'm curious to see how it progresses this next year. And they certainly have a vibrant community. Like if you have any, um, the, I mentioned the special interest groups a little bit before, um, but they also have these these really active mailing lists where people are asking questions and sharing products that they've created and um, sort of ideas that they have about changing designs of of API and technical things. And the Swift for TensorFlow user um, uh, sort of user group and mailing list is consistently one of the most active. Uh, so if you have curiosity about it, um, absolutely join and uh, send your questions to Swift at TensorFlow.org. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I uh, people keep asking me like what I think about it. I'm like, I don't know. I've never, <laughs> never seen Swift outside of a slide yeah. on, you know, the Apple, presentation right? yesterday. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very, when I first, because um, it was announced last year, uh, uh -huh. Swift for TensorFlow, but, but in a very sort of low-key way. Right? Okay, like, like, I missed that. Yeah, like it was, it was, it was a presentation. It was also the best non-leak 
of, of TensorFlow history, I think. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody anticipated that it was coming. Um, but uh, so it was announced last year. And all of the progress that you've seen um, seen since has been made since that initial announcement. Um, but yeah, like usually you would think Swift and think, you know, iOS or, or mm -hmm. you know, something. That's exactly what I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I tell people I'm kind of excited about it because Jeremy's excited yeah. about it. Part two of the, the new course is starting up soon. And it sounds like he and Chris will be collaborating on a couple yeah. of lessons in that course to kind of highlight. Yeah. Uh, well, not just kind of highlight the Swift for TensorFlow, but also this is maybe a little bit of kind of inside baseball or whatever. But like the way that the they the way that he builds the courses is basically by building out the framework, mm -hmm. right? And that becomes the process of building out the framework becomes the course. Yep. And so uh, it sounds like what he and Chris will be doing in this course is like starting to build out the fast.ai swift version yep as uh kind of part of this course is really uh fascinating kind of approach um for multiple reasons i took a look at his blog post about kind of why he was so excited about swift and one of the reasons that that he's real plain about is like this is the ground floor opportunity like swift you know tensorflow uh, or rather python you know there are all of these challenges associated with um, like the barrier between Python and C when you have to get really deep or, and yeah. not being able to debug all the way through and not be able to trace variables all the way through that kind of thing um, and needing to kind of shim out underneath Python to get performance. And uh, one of the reasons why he's excited about Swift is because it is uh, high performance yeah. and, you know, to the extent that over time, kind of the entire stack gets built in a high-performance language, you don't have these barriers yeah. that you have to figure out. Absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating space. And also, um, so it, one of the things that shocked me the most, I guess, about Swift was how intuitive it was to understand as mm. a language. Like if you, look at the, if you look at the Swift code used to generate a, a neural network, it feels very similar to Keras. Okay. Like it's it's like it, it's not because um, I I took some C plus plus classes in college and I am not a fan um, and will not be shy about saying that like I I love the idea of it conceptually as a language but it's something that's very um, it doesn't feel natural for me to use mm -hmm. Swift feels a great deal more natural hmm. and uh, one of uh, one of the challenges I think that they're going to to face is the um, that Swift as you mentioned hasn't uh, traditionally been a data science -y language. Right. So they don't have all of the, the vast, um, the vast libraries of tools that Python has. Um, so things like matplotlib and scikit-learn for, for traditional machine learning tasks and, and the like. Um, but it's really interesting in that, um, so we're doing Google Summer of Code for the very first time this year. Mm -hmm. uh, and five of our projects or five of our proposed projects are Swift for TensorFlow related. Mm -hmm. um, Summer so of Code, for those that don't know, is a program where open source projects can get matched with like college students or students in general, maybe, yeah. and get some funding to pay them to work on the project. Absolutely. So the Google Summer of Code, it's one of my favorite things about Google. Um, and it, it was also, when I, uh, I applied for it a, a long time ago, 
um, when I was still doing the, the grad school thing. And uh, I applied to a project called uh, AIMA and got a response back from Peter Norvig, who was apparently the, <laughs> the, the person who, who was sponsoring the project. And that was my first email from a Googler and it was Peter Norvig. So wow. it was, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> But the um, but it's it's so enchanting in that uh, open source projects can apply to be part of this this uh, GSOC program. Um, if they're selected, they can have uh, a partnership of mentors who are directly working on the project and students. Um, the mentors work collaboratively with the students. Um, doesn't matter where they're located. They uh, and it's they're certainly encouraged to be remote. Um, and the, the students are kind of guided through making their first substantial open source contribution um, and also paid for it, which, you know, as a student, that's kind of like a dream come true, right? Like right. you get to work on open source, you get to be paid, and potentially you get to be mentored by, like in the Swift for, in for TensorFlow case, like you would be mentored by Chris Latner or, wow. uh, yeah, or uh, the AIMA case, you would be mentored by Peter Norvig or... Um, for the rest of our for the rest of our project opportunities, right? We've got Autograph and TF Function and uh, sort of TensorBoard and TensorFlow datasets. You're you're mentored directly by the often the people, the engineers who've created those products. Mm -hmm. uh, so at least in TensorFlow's case, and and in and the the other projects that are sponsored, um, it's it's really a phenomenal opportunity, and I'm excited to see what the GSOC students build out for Swift for TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned something uh, earlier that kind of tied to a question that I had uh, in kind of seeing the Swift for TensorFlow announcement. How did how would a Swift for TensorFlow kind of play or not play with a Keras? Yes. So Swift for TensorFlow, um, like you you can use Keras within it. Um, but for the most part, it's like you can use any Python within yes, Swift. Yes, but it, it's recommended that you um, that you would program um, using Swift. But but again, the Swift uh, the Swift syntax looks very very similar to Keras syntax. Mm -hmm. um, and we can, uh, if folks are interested, we can share some of the collab notebooks that uh, like links to it that were shared yesterday. Right. Okay. The, the, yeah. yeah. Um, the, I would, I would love to see that. And another really cool thing about Swift for TensorFlow is that it works in Jupyter Notebooks. It works in Google Colab. Um, so, so really the notebook experience, if you're a data scientist, feels very familiar as well. One of the big kind of announcements in addition to kind of the under the cover stuff was kind of a rationalization of the APIs. Yeah, it, it sounds yeah, yeah. like it's more than just hey, Curious is the default, and more than even, um, I don't know the right way to ask this, but- We're it, getting organized. Is that, <laughs> is that is what that, it is? <laughs> I, think, I think so, or at least that's what it feels like. The, um, so, so the original, I, I started using TensorFlow, like not, not for real substantial work, but just for you know, personal projects and like prototyping things in 2015 when it was released. And it was, oh man, like it was, it was not fun. <laughs> like it was, it was not good at all. Like TensorFlow, the original version, um, like it, you, you had to write so much boilerplate in order to get something to work. And then uh, it's, since the initial release, it's just, it had grown just sort of exponentially. We had this uh, module called Contrib, TF Contrib. 
um, that was kind of a generalized catch-all for um, for things that folks wanted to add. So if you were a grad student and you had created, you know, um, a collection of loss functions, you would you would add those in contrib. Or we had um, tf.contrib.gan, which was really a, a sort of beloved, uh, you know, GAN, um, GAN creation tooling for like a, a straightforward path to creating GANs using TensorFlow. And we'll still have it um, just migrated to its own repo. Um, but the but the sad reality of Contrib was that none of those contributions had a support plan. None of them had a defined owner, so like a proxy maintainer. Um, and a lot of them um, maybe functioned in an earlier version of TensorFlow, but failed to work later. And there was no clear way to understand what worked, what didn't, what was a duplicate, and um, like how would you migrate from what, like a symbol to the core API. So that really wasn't defined. We also had a lot of mathematical operations and um, sort of more traditional statistics capabilities that were in various places in the API, but not really kind of structured and grouped together. Um, and and it was, gosh, I don't want to I don't want to count how many symbols there were, but there were certainly thousands. There were thousands of symbols um, without any clear structure or consistent naming conventions, and a lot of duplication and a lot of uh, sort of things that that kind of failed to work together nicely. Um, so so the now we've taken a more modularized approach. Mm-hmm. So all of the statistics and mathematical capabilities have been kind of bracketed off and turned into something called TF probability. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you don't want to use all of the all of the things in TensorFlow, like you you don't really care about um, you don't really care about um, you know Keras or you don't care about some other portion of the API. You can just use TF probability and you can download it as a pit package or estimators. Um, you can just download estimators. So all of these things um, we've removed duplication. We've kind of taken all of the symbols that were just kind of, um, you know, dispersed to the winds and grouped them together in a way that seems more logical um, and also um, applied a lot of um, a lot of sort of well thought out renames um, to make things more consistent and to make the the um, the sort of calls feel more um, intuitive. Uh, but that's that's kind of the idea is that instead of one monolithic application that you have to download in its entirety in order to use a single bit of functionality, um, you just take the pieces that fit for you and your organization. And that helps a lot with the the build and deployment process as well. I definitely saw that in the the discussion yesterday. And one of the the analogies that kind of popped up in my head is like, Hadoop and, and not <laughs> not all the negative associations with Hadoop, but like people think of Hadoop as, you know, they think of it as this one thing, MapReduce, yeah, yeah. right? When really it was like a storage system and MapReduce and like this whole ecosystem of stuff. All of, of the stuff, Apache products. All yeah, of the yeah, Apache yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. TensorFlow, like, I think we're transitioning from a point where you would think of TensorFlow as this monolithic thing to, like, you got an ecosystem, right, yeah. with the probability stuff, um, which we can talk maybe a little bit more about the TFX stuff, which I'm really excited about, yeah. which is almost its own ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so that I think that's an interesting kind of transition and one that, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, there's a, a natural point in a large open source project where you start to see that kind of thing happen. Yeah. 
And it's really interesting to, um, at least from a developer advocacy perspective, to see the different communities that build up for each one of those tools. Um, so, for example, um, we mentioned Swift for TensorFlow, and usually the folks who gravitate um, gravitate towards that uh, towards that camp are very interested in things like algorithmic fusion. They're very interested in compilers and you know sort of performance. And then you have folks in the TensorFlow.js community um, that are uh, so TensorFlow.js is JavaScript in the browser um, that are that are very focused on uh, creating these sort of uh, uh, artistic experiences. Often, like you would have code pens to do um, neural drum machines, or you would have uh, you know really interesting um, sort of. Uh, you know, like puppy ears placed on people heads that, you know, would follow you around as you as you look in your your phone camera, or your browser um, or, uh, you know, even things like um, sort of in a in a more product centric way. Like if you're a developer who wanted to include a text box in your application, um, automatically including something like sentiment analysis within it. So as a huh. person is typing, oh, well, um, yeah. yeah, it would be like, hey man, you know, your tone's kinda your tone's kind of negative there. Maybe you should make it a little bit happier. Or maybe you should be a little bit uh, like change this word to be this other word and that should be fine. So so those those sorts of tools. And then TensorFlow Core, you know, you get a lot of academic researchers, sure, but you also get businesses who are really interested in productizing machine learning and deep learning. And then they also are interested in TFX. And yeah, it's really cool to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, TFX. Yeah. That was one of the, the things that I was most excited about. Mm -hmm. um, TFX is TensorFlow Extended. Yes. Um, and there's a workshop for it today. As and well. there's a workshop for it today that I will be popping in on. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited about that. So my, I've mentioned this to a couple of people. Yes, you know, so I've, you know, we've done a, a series of podcasts on the show about uh, machine learning infrastructure, and I've been writing eBooks about machine learning infrastructure, and it's a space that I'm really excited about. And I've looked at uh, TFX in the past, and it was hard to really like wrap my head around it. It's just like this kind of random collection of tools. Yeah. Um, but what was announced yesterday seem like the beginning of making it more coherent and yes. kind of like when you read the TFX, like the papers, like it's clear that Google has this kind of very elaborate, sophisticated infrastructure yeah. internally. And I think looking at that and then seeing what was previously available made it even more disappointing. It's like, that's all you're giving me is yeah. like. Data validation <laughs> right, and surveying. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, but. Yeah. Um, so maybe kind of what it's your, you know, what's the uh, kind of the top line on, on TFX or what are you excited about from that perspective? I'm so glad that you mentioned TFX because TFX is one of the reasons why I wanted to come work at Google in the first place. Hmm. Like I read the paper um, and I, I think I mentioned a little bit before I worked as a data scientist in the, in the energy industry for a long time. And the hard bit, like it was, it was always delightful to create the models. You know, it was cool to have this like crunchy engineering challenge and to take data and to figure out how to solve it um, in a way that, um, in a way that sort of made sense and that would, and that would be performant and explainable. Um, but then the hard part was always, okay, cool. Now, how do I deploy it? Like, how do I get it placed? How do I have this model placed into a format that somebody can use in a software application? And then once it's released, how do I make sure that it's doing its job and that it's kept up to date? 
Um, and how do I make sure that the incoming data stays consistent with the data that was used to train the model initially? And if I want to do online training, how would I go about doing that? Mm -hmm. um, so all of these like really interesting questions where the model was just like this tiny piece of this big, big overall like um, sort of continuous, uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment strategy, um, like DevOps for data science. And the uh, and TFX, the paper, uh, sort of gave, um, it, it sort of uh, elaborated on a strategy that Google's been using successfully over the past, you know, 10 years to do that effectively. Because most businesses, they create custom glue code. Um, they, they don't really, they might have a, a component of um, DevOps for their machine learning models. Um, but a lot of it might be manual, so uh, not necessarily. Uh, an example would be if your model falls below a given accuracy um, for for a, a stint of time. How Please is it? Somebody. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, or it's like, and if you're the other the other piece, right, is that data scientists they're probably creating their model in Python or R. Um, in order to get it integrated with a software application, that model, um, at least where I worked previously, it would have to be refactored into something like Java or C++, mm -hmm. um, which means that you're, you know, usually your accuracy goes down. Like it just, it's, it's not a good situation. Um, and then if your model needs to be updated, how are you going to take that C++ and Java, give it back to your data science team and be like, well, fix it now. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, there's, it's, there's no straightforward path to do that. Um, with TensorFlow, uh, you know, it's, it's the same framework for everything. So the data scientist can create it. It can be deployed by your, you know, your DevOps team. It can be maintained by them as well. And then if it needs to be modified, it's the same TensorFlow code that your data scientists know how to use. So TFX, you're right in that when it was announced last year, um, they only had like two little components of, of this, uh, this uh, sort of toolbox of things, the data, everything from data validation, um, which allows you to do those data checks that I was mentioning before. Um, transformation, so TFT, TensorFlow Transform, which allows you to do pre-processing on data pipelines um, to make sure that, uh, and, and full pass data processing, to make sure that it, your statistical distributions for each feature are similar as they're coming through your pipeline. Um, model analysis, which gives you insight into how your model's performing over time. There's even a GUI to show you um, sort of metrics associated with that. Of course, there's serving. Um, and then there's also um, sort of additional tools that I, I believe Clemens mentioned yesterday, um, a collaboration with Kubeflow. Um, but uh, all, of, all of these uh, sort of products that bundled up together alleviate the need for you and your company to have to write glue code and to have to refactor models. And um, to, to, it gives you the tools to deploy models um, in a maintainable way. Yeah, there's also an interesting bit in there about uh, kind of a metadata repository where yeah. you're able to track all of the configs and parameters yes. associated with various both data lineage experiment and data prompts. runs, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have your experiments, and then when you have a, a model that you're pushing out to production, mm -hmm. all that information, and there were some use cases presented to your point that shows how you can use that information to 
you know, go kind of work backward from a model decision to what training data, you know, impacted that model decision and what the, yeah. the experiments were that kind of drove to that, those sets of model parameters and stuff. Absolutely. And that's huge in terms of model explainability. Um, so if you're working in a high impact industry, again, like the, the oil industry, you had to be able to explain why you made a decision just in case it was the wrong one. Um, and then also reproducibility. So if, mm-hmm. if somebody wants to take your results and try to replicate them on their own data or, you know, try a different model um, and see if the performance is, if the performance varies, um, then having all of that metadata associated with the input is huge. Anything else that we've not talked about yet uh, that so, you left excited about yesterday or, well, you knew about it already, but. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> it was still exciting to hear. Um, so I, I, I'm really, um, it's not a secret. Like I, I am most excited about the community focus for TensorFlow, um, mm. and I, I really love, uh, I really love that 2.0 has been pushing for community involvement and uh, like not making any changes unless everybody who's using the tool is, um, you know, is informed and and has had the opportunity to give feedback. The uh, so the original release of TensorFlow felt very much like you know, delivering tablets down from a mountain kind of almost. It's, you know, the code was released and um, the, over time, like, community could get involved, but it was really only through this this thing called Contrib. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, the engineering was done by the engineering team at Google. And since then, it's, it's developed into more of a partnership between um, individuals in the community, but also companies who are using TensorFlow extensively. Um, and, you know, students or uh, application developers, or, you know, not just deep learning researchers, but really people coming from all walks of life who want to incorporate machine learning into their tools, who have crunchy problems that machine learning can help solve. So that is that is my favorite thing, is that TensorFlow 2.0 is all about community. You mentioned the um, RFC yes. process, and that's a, that's a new process since... That's a new, the RFC process is a new process that was begun, I believe, halfway through last year. Okay. Um, so maybe July, August of last year. Okay. Um, and again, it, if you if you want to make a change to the API, uh, anybody can do it. Um, so if you have an idea that you think would be solid, um, you just propose it. The engineering team, um, both at Google and then also externally, reviews it, um, delivers commentary. Um, and if everybody agrees, then um, development work can start. Awesome. Well, Paige, thanks so much for taking thank- the time to chat with me. Thank you um, so much for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.